Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. Earlier this year, Tim Keller, pastor emeritus at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, spoke to Co-Mission pastors and elders. Here's that talk, Leadership Wisdom for London. Yes, whenever I come in here, it just reminds me they just don't make ceilings like they used to. <laughs> they just don't make... In fact, actually, it's more interesting than you, so I just hope that... <laughs> I hope that I'm not distracted by it. It's a terrible thing. And I hope you're not distracted by it. Um, I want to talk about something that you might ordinarily not hear in the incessant meetings we have about how to do ministry and church planting in in a city like like London. Um, I want to talk to you about wisdom for church leadership. Uh, Some of you might know a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I wrote a devotional on Proverbs, and we had to work, we had to basically crawl through Proverbs verse by verse for a couple of years. And I was very, very impressed by how much uh, Proverbs says about leadership, and also how much is very, very relevant, even though you're not going to hear me mention, at least during this talk, you're not going to hear me mention church planning too often, but I'm chosen, uh, and, and I'm, I've chosen certain principles, and I'm also uh, in a sense, going to illustrate them and frame them in a way that I think are particularly useful for people who are doing church planning in cities. Um, so what's wisdom? What is leadership wisdom and how do you grow it? What is wisdom? You might say, well, I know what wisdom is. Uh, well, in a sense, you probably don't. I, I actually this year heard Vaughn Roberts in one of his, uh, I heard him teaching, and he made a a statement which I think is extremely important. He said, because God created the world and because God is sovereign and in control of history, it means that obedience is always the wise thing to do. Obedience to God is always the wise thing to do, no matter what its immediate cost. Uh, In other words, God created the world God is sovereign over the world. God's laws and his, the, the things that the Bible says reflect the nature of his creation. And therefore, to ever go against what the Bible says, to ever go against God's will, God's word, is always stupid. It's not just disobedient, though it is. Primarily, it's, stu- it's, it's, it's disobedient. Primarily, it's offensive to God. But secondarily, it's stupid. That is to say, it's the most unwise thing you can possibly do. So wisdom is not less... <clears throat> than being obedient to God's word. But wisdom actually goes beyond that because there are so many situations to which God's word doesn't speak real directly, doesn't directly address. God's word gives you principles that help you make every decision. And yet the fact, of course, is if, uh, if someone comes to you and says, I'm thinking about committing adultery, you don't say, well, let's pray about it and talk about it. You say, no, you can't commit adultery. The Bible says you can't commit adultery. But if somebody comes to you and says, I don't know whether I should marry this person or this person. Well, of course, there, you know, obviously God says you have to, you have to marry in the Lord. So it's, it doesn't mean that most of the human race isn't already ruled out for you. Nevertheless, it doesn't tell you exactly who you should marry. It doesn't tell you exactly the job you should take or whether you should quit this job and take another job. Uh, 80% of the major decisions we have to make are not directly dictated by the Bible. And yet, uh, to make a bad decision, a foolish decision, an unwise decision, can ruin your life. And so, in a way, wisdom is not being less than obedient to the word of God. It's not being less, you might say, than being obedient. 
but it's more. It's, it's knowing the right thing and the wise thing to do in the many, 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 the majority of life situations that the Bible doesn't speak directly to. So what is wisdom? If you're going to figure out what it is, the best way to do it is to read the first chapter of, of Proverbs and pay attention to the Hebrew words. Uh, one of the things that I learned from Derek Kidner's little commentary years ago, which is too short and it's pretty old now, but it's still a wonderful treasure. Uh, he mentions that it's in the first chapter and somewhat in the second chapter that many, many synonyms are used for, for uh, wisdom. Of course, there's the Hebrew word chokmah, uh, which is the word for wisdom. It means to be competent with regards to the complexities and realities of life. But there's a whole lot of synonyms that every translation, by the way, translates differently. And I'll just give you three that I think break down what wisdom is. Wisdom is insight, foresight, and knowledgeableness. You're wise if you have insight, foresight, and knowledgeableness. Insight is the Hebrew word binah, which is uh, usually translated insight. Sometimes it's translated discernment. And it means the ability to see small differences. So, for example, you, there's four people that you could hire for a very important job. And a, an unwise person says, well, this person can't, but these three, they all could do the job. But a wise person can see small differences between those three people and make the decision of which is the best person. Bina means insight. Then there's, a, there's several other Hebrew words like uh, orma and haskel, which are translated in various ways, but they basically mean foresight. That means they mean to be strategic. A wise person is someone who knows what the result of a particular action is exactly going to be. If you say, well, I thought I better talk to that person about that, and he quit. I had no idea he'd resign. Lack of foresight. Why? In other words, you, you, you didn't know what the result of that would be. If you were wise enough, you would have known that if you said that to him, he would quit. See? Uh, actually, somebody once said to me that being able to change something, and you all are in situations as leaders where you need to make changes, uh, very often things will change, and they'll change successfully, and everybody will be on board, and it will actually happen, is if you, if, if you do these 10, 10 steps in exactly this order, if you do the thing that you ought to be doing fifth, third, it's all over. If you're doing the thing that you ought to be doing seventh, second, it's all over. And the reason why people do do it that way and the reason why very often changes do fall apart was because there's just lack of foresight. foresight. So you have insight, foresight, and then knowledgeableness. And the, 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 uh, Fairly often, when talking about wisdom, we say, well, wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. That's exactly right. I, I do know a man I saw once who knew everything academically there was to know about poverty. He was, just a, he was a brilliant in understanding poverty, sociologically, anthropologically, and economically. When it came to actually him trying to help an actual poor family get on their feet, he was a disaster. So here's somebody, it's possible to know a lot about a subject and not be wise about it. But it's impossible to be wise about a subject and not know a lot about it. See? You can have knowledge without wisdom, but you really can't have wisdom without knowledge. You really do have to still know about your subject. Now, if you have insight, if you have foresight, and if you have knowledgeableness, in four areas, according to the book of Proverbs, you are becoming a wise person. What are those four areas? 
You need to have insight, foresight, and knowledgeableness about God's will, your own heart, you have to really know your heart, human nature, you have to really know how people are and how people act, and the times and the seasons. And if you've got those three things about those four areas, the will of God, your own knowledge of your own heart, human nature, times and seasons, you're becoming a wise person. But we're here to talk about, all right, let's apply this to what does the Bible say about uh, wisdom for church leaders? There's an awful lot of church leaders I know that are passionate, that they're doctrinally solid, uh, they're highly committed, and they're foolish. And they make all kinds of foolish moves all the time. And therefore, God's commission is not going forward. So let's talk about what I see in this scripture, mainly in the book of Proverbs, but I've added a few other things. Uh, eight, I think, we'll, we'll count them as we go along, eight uh, features of uh, wise church leadership. So I'm going to start eight times, I think I'm going to say, wise leaders lead like this, okay? A, wise leaders lead mainly through character. Uh, as you know, 1 Peter 5, 3, now he's talking to elders here and some of you are elders, but it's, this would be true, of course, to any of you, any of you in leadership at all. He says, lead not by lording it over, but by being examples. I mean, that's so clear. Not by lording it over, but by being examples. Occasionally, you really can, as they say, pull rank. I don't know. I suppose you've got that. You never, whenever you use an idiom, when you're American you or British and you go to the other continent and you use idioms, you always have to ask. But, uh, you know, the, the idiom pull rank, meaning you're standing on your authority. You're saying, look, I'm the boss here. I'm the pastor here. I'm the elder here. Occasionally, um, you can do that and you should do that, but it should be rare. According to 1 Peter 3, your example, your example ought to be so compelling people will want to follow you. And what does that mean? It means godliness of character, deep godliness of character. Love and joy. Are you known as a person of love and joy? Peace and patience. Very, very slow to get riled. Integrity and courage. But humility and self-control. Uh, let me get just, in a minute I'm going to show you that leaders are supposed to be catalytic, meaning they're supposed to give people a picture of the future so people are compelled and they want to follow. But you know what? And also, good leaders are organized. We'll talk about that in a second. But the fact is, you may not be all that great in your leadership gifts. You may not be really a gifted leader, but if you're godly, I mean, if you are godly, people are going to follow you. They're going to follow you because they're going to trust you. By the way, I even go so far as to say character is, a lack of character is usually the reason why preaching is boring, but that's another subject. I mean, in other words, you can be, you can be relatively uninteresting just because you don't have great rhetorical gifts. You just, God didn't give them to you. But to be truly boring takes a certain amount of pride. <laughs> it's true. You have to be full of yourself about your doctrine or want to showing off your, show off your, your Bible uh, knowledge or something like that. So the fact is, wise leaders lead through character, number one. Number two, A, or let's, let's say B. Wise leaders lead by judging character, by reading character. So uh, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 5, 
The purposes of the heart are deep waters, but one with insight draws it out. Or 28, I mean, it's in the same chapter of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 8, the king winnows all evil with his eyes. And what, there's, what <clears throat> both, both those texts are saying is, the mark between a, one of the marks of a wise person versus a foolish person is that they actually can judge motives. Do you know the difference between somebody who's really passionate for the gospel and a person who's just so insecure and desperately trying to be liked or trying to feel good about him or herself? Can you tell the difference? You better. Because actually, there is nothing more important for leaders than to be able to choose other leaders, to be able to choose other people, to, be, to hire people or to, or to recruit people in the leadership position. It's absolutely crucial. And temperamentally, none of us are wise. In fact, I'll keep, I'm going to get back to this before we're done. Our temperament is a habitual way we do things. We may be temperamentally extroverted, temperamentally introverted, temperamentally cynical, temperamentally naive. We all, a, a temperament is a default mode. It's something that comes, uh, it, was, it was rooted in us because of probably culture and maybe family background or whatever. And it's a habitual way of dealing with situations. But the fact is, a wise person always responds to situations as they need to be responded to. So most of us temperamentally tend to be either cynical or naive about people. So some of us tend to, to, to hire people and recruit people and afterwards say, oh my goodness, why did I do that? This person is not at all the right person. The re- many of the rest of us are so cynical, we actually never trust anybody and we can't really build the movement because we've got to, we can only work with people who are just exactly like us. And the ability to be able to look into people's hearts and know what they're thinking. You know, in 1 Kings, when, when uh, God comes to Solomon and says, hey, you're a new king, what do you need? And Solomon does not ask for wealth and he does not ask for military victory. He asks for what? Wisdom. But in what way? Remember, in 1 Kings 3, there's these two women. Each of them says, this baby is mine. And the essence of wisdom is to discern the motives. One of those women were being, was being... Uh, uh, duplicitous and one was being sincere and Solomon as you know the story I won't go into this Solomon in his his wisdom found a way to look into the into the women's hearts so you know uh, George MacDonald whose theology was absolutely horrible but his fairy tales were great and uh, he wrote one of his fairy tales is called the princess and Curdie and it's about uh, Curdie is the hero and he Curdie has to go on a kind of quest for, I can't remember what the quest is for, but, but this, uh, the fairy godmother, grandmother, shows up and says, you need a special power if you're going to succeed. And the special power is that when he touches somebody's hand, he can discern what the person is really like. Sometimes he can actually touch what looks like a beautiful woman's hand, and he perceives a claw. Or in one case, he actually touches the, uh, the, the hide of a horrible beast and he perceives a child on the inside that had been turned into a horrible beast. So it's a fairy tale. But the point was the ability to read character, which the Bible says is crucial to being a, a leader, is also you know, a, a second extremely important... By the way, I'm, I know I'm scaring everybody here as I go along. You're saying, oh, how do we get this? Well, that's point three. And a, a good speaker gets you to want the end, not like, how do we get to the end? Uh, so wise leaders lead through by reading character. Uh, C, wise leaders lead by uh, decisiveness without impulsiveness. Decisiveness without impulsiveness. 
Uh, now, when I say no impulsiveness, you surely know that Proverbs is just over the top about slowing down on your decisions. So, for example, chapter 12, verse 15 says, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise ask for lots of advice, which is kind of frightening because some of us who are leaders, the way, <laughs> this, it's obvious, you know, <laughs> the way of fools um, uh, always seems right to them. But frankly, the, he says the wise slow it down and ask a lot of advice and try to, and you, you don't go on your gut. Another way of saying that is chapter 15, 12, 15 is the way of fools is to go with the gut and the, uh, go with the viscera. Uh, here, another one is chapter 21, verse 5. Uh, this is again in Proverbs. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, but haste leads to poverty. Haste. I mean, haste is like the bad guy in the book of Proverbs. So impulsiveness, no good. No good at all. But here's what you've got to keep in mind is Jesus also judges indecisiveness. Every perfect example of this is, is the, the three stewards in Matthew 25, the parable of the stewards. And so a, an owner gives three stewards in so many talents, you know, uh, but one of the guys, one of the stewards, never invests the talent. And he's nervous, he's afraid, he's indecisive, and he's not quite sure, he's afraid of losing it. And so he thinks and he thinks and he thinks and he never does anything. And of course, when the owner comes back, you know, what did you do with my talent? Well, here is your talent. I didn't, I didn't grow it because I was, you know, I knew that you're a wicked and hard master. But of course, the, the, the uh, you know, the conclusion, you might say, on that servant is you wicked, lazy servant. Not you wicked, indecisive servant. You, you know, you wicked, lazy servant. The fact is that the, a leader is decisive, and a person who's not decisive has the fear of man. A person who's not decisive is just too afraid of looking bad, too afraid of what people think, and yet you can't be impulsive because a wise leader is marked by decisiveness but not impulsiveness. Now, that's C. D is very, very close. I almost put these two together, but I thought I'd better bring them out too. Uh, a wise leader... Uh, leads by assertiveness, but not domineering. They're awfully close, but here's what I mean by that. In the Bible, especially in the New Testament, ministry is looked at as stewardship. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.17, and also in Titus 1.7, calls ministers of the gospel stewards. Now, the reason that that word means a lot and Jesus explains it a lot in his parables, is stewards are both rulers and servants at the same time. Because a steward was actually the COO or really the ruler of the estate, but not the owner of the estate. Ultimately, uh, everyone reported to the steward, but the steward reported to the owner. And that's a person who is a really interesting person. That person on the one hand is not an owner, uh, not a ruler, is a servant, on the other hand, is a ruler. And you could argue, and I will right here, is that in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus talks about the, uh, the steward who beats the other servants, and he's told that when the owner comes back, he's going to cut you to pieces. Uh, when, uh, if you forget that you are just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, as I just showed you in Matthew 26, if you're an indecisive uh, steward, that means you're not saying you're a ruler. See, the Matthew 26 steward would not act like a ruler, 
the Luke 12 steward would not act like a servant. But a real leader is both at the same time and not half and half, both at the same time. Uh, so you've got some leaders who just want consensus and they want everybody on board and n- you, nothing ever happens. And you've got other leaders that are domineering. They say, my way or the highway, this is the way to go. And Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus condemns both. But here's why I'm going to just say this. Your temperament will pr- make you prone to one or the other. Nobody is wise without the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you've got a temperament. You've got a habitual way of doing things. And that temperament is going to lead you to be a bad ruler or a bad servant. You're going to tend to be too domineering or you're going to tend to be too uh, unassertive. And Jesus condemns both because that's not what leaders are. Okay, so that's A, B, C, D, E. Wise leaders lead two ways. This could be two, but not this two ways. Catalyzing and organizing. Now, when I say by catalyzing and organizing, you know this is a pretty famous proverb that's uh, contested, translation is contested, and it's interpretation. It's chapter 29, verse 18. Proverbs 29, 18, where the old translation is without vision of people perish. You've heard that. But of course, uh, you know, other people point out that the word vision can also mean revelation. And so some translate it without revelation, the people cast off restraint, which is, sure sounds different. And uh, by the way, during the writing of the book, I had to get out a bunch of commentaries, all the people who know Hebrew better than me, and weigh it up. And I do think the fair, I think it's fair to say that both sides have some right, and therefore you should say this. It's the job of the leader to use the Bible to cast vision. <laughs> it's the job of the leader not just to cast the vision that, that, that the leader wants to cast, but on the basis of what the Scripture teaches. On the basis of what the Scripture teaches. Uh, you are supposed to be putting in front of people. It's not enough just to keep the machinery going. That's not a leader. A leader has to say, how do we improve? How do we make progress? Great commission. You know, disciple the nations. We, we can never be happy with the, with the status quo, ever. So leaders should always be catalytic. But secondly, they have to be organized. Now, here's where I'm going to really make you feel bad. Ready? I know you're, so many of you are English, so you're not going to show it, I know. But I'm, going to tr- I'm still going to try. Uh, a leader is organized, and I'm talking here for a moment about time. When I read Matthew, oh, pardon me, Mark chapter 135, very famous in some circles here, Mark 135, that Jesus Christ early in the morning, long in the dark, long before dawn, went out and prayed. And then Luke 9:51, where Jesus comes, uh, it says, uh, when the time had come to go to Jerusalem, Jesus went to Jerusalem. I love that verse. Nine, Luke 9, 51. When, Jesus, when the time had come to go to Jerusalem, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Here's what I'm going to say. Let me, I, I wrote it down just so I said it right. In Jesus Christ, we have a man who masters time completely, masters time completely in service to his calling. He completely masters time in service to his calling. There, it's never wasted. He never spends too much time in one thing and too little time. He, he, he completely masters time uh, to serve his calling. Do you? Do I? No. And a good leader, plenty of passages in the, in 
in Proverbs talk about a leader who can count the cost to figure out how much time it's going to take, figure out what it's going to, not start things until you know exactly what it's going to take. Uh, but Jesus Christ, and I, I'm just extremely convicted by it, so misery loves company, uh, that is that he had a complete mastery of time in service of God's calling on him. Do we have complete mastery of time? So leaders lead by catalyzing and organizing. Almost done, uh, at least for this, this list. Uh, here we go, I guess A, B, C, D, E, let's, let's call this F. Wise leaders lead out of a desire to serve, not to get an identity and self-worth. They minister out of a desire to serve, not to get an identity and self-worth. I can't rush, rush past this too fast. Every, like uh, Proverbs 20, 28 says something pretty surprising. Proverbs 20, 28 says, the, he says, through love, a king's throne is made secure. Through love, I mean, that's, that's not the typical Old Testament thing to say about the king. Through love. And what the commentators will tell you is what he's really saying is, the king's throne is not secure unless the people know that ultimately, in spite of how tough a guy he is, in spite of how authoritative a guy he is, they've got to know that he loves his people. And of course, Luke chapter 22, 27 says, uh, you know, where Jesus is the place where he says, who is greater, the one who sits at the table, the one who serves, I'm among you as one who serves. So it's just so typical to say servant leadership, servant leadership, we're here not for ourselves, we're here not for our own power, it's all servant leadership. But I tell you the spiritual reality is that you will tend to identify with your ministry in a way that you probably wouldn't have identified if you were a banker or, well, that can happen too. But the fact is, when you get into ministry, there's a tendency to so identify with that ministry. So the ministry does well, then I feel good about myself. And so the ministry becomes an identity, to some degree, a bigger identity factor than the love of Christ for you. And that is absolutely deadly. I do remember years ago reading in Spurgeon's lectures to my student at one place where he said, he actually said, don't preach the gospel to save your own soul. And I remember I was a young Christian when I read that and I said, that's crazy. Why would anybody go and call other people to be converted if they weren't converted themselves? But now I get it. I know what he's saying. Do you? He says, to a great degree. So I know Jesus loves me. On the other hand, we're still trying to prove to ourselves in the ministry that Jesus loves us. And that is absolutely deadly because the people are going to recognize it, that you really are in it for you. You're really not in it for them. Love is not the foundation of your throne. And here's what I mean. How well do you take criticism? See, if you identify with your ministry, then criticism of your ministry is criticism of you. And you just, it, it really bothers you. And people sense how it bothers you. And guess what? You have a very bad leadership environment. You know why? The best way for you to grow is to make sure that everybody feels free to speak up and make suggestions. Everybody's got to say, you know, I don't think that's working. I'm not sure that's working. I mean, by f if you want the most wisdom out of your community, you've got to make it safe to criticize the way things are. But if you identify so much with your ministry, they can tell that the criticism bothers you. They're going to shut up. Are you going to lose their wisdom? Not only that, when things go well, if, if your ministry really does well, it's going to go to your head. If your ministry goes terribly, it's going to go right to your heart and your self-image, and it's just going to, you're going to melt down. 
because you're actually not rooted in Christ. You're rooted in your ministry for Christ. So it's uh, wise leaders know this huge danger. And wise leaders, um, love is the throne, is the foundation of the throne. And Christ is the, is the foundation of their identity and not their ministry. And lastly, wise leaders know that leaders are lonely and they, and they escape the trap of self-pity about it. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful prose? Wise leaders know that leaders are lonely and they escape the trap of self-pity over it. Now, what do I mean by that? I, there's a, I was meditating near the very end of the book of Proverbs, it's like chapter 31, King Lemuel, Lemuel has a mother who writes advice to him. <laughs> a queen mother, I get, you know, the queen mom, and invites, uh, writes advice. And she says, let other people drink wine, let other drink, people drink beer, that's fine for them, they're people, that's great. But you're a king, and if you're drunk and somebody comes to you for justice, you're going to do injustice. So, sorry, you can't drink wine and beer. And I was reading on that, I realized what, what, what she's saying. It's lonely at the top. The fact is that if you're going to be a leader, you are not like everybody else. For example, you can't just let your prayer life go the way you used to. You can't find yourself just so busy, I haven't really prayed in days. You, don't ha- you can't do that anymore. When you're just a regular person, maybe. But people are depending on you. You'll do injustice. And there's something very lonely about being in the leadership role. Uh, I could spend more time on that. Don't ask me more about it because it's a, it's a hard thing to even talk about. But the more uh, you find the leadership, the more leadership you get into, the more in some ways you feel like, in spite of all the colleagues and all that, there's a certain loneliness to it. And the great danger is self-pity. Because I, I can almost tell how David did the stupid thing that he did, King David. How could, how could King David do what he did with Bathsheba? Looking over there, here's what probably, something like this went on in his heart. He says, people don't know all the sacrifices I make. People have no idea all I have to go through to be king. I deserve that. Maybe it's not right, but I deserve that self-pity that comes from the loneliness and a wise leader knows ahead of time it's going to happen and guards against it. Okay, here's the four things and I'll be pretty brief. How do you grow this? See, I I told you by now you should all be scared. You should be if you're not. I, I wouldn't say you're not listening. I would say I just haven't been an effective communicator because you really can't survive in any leadership, but especially certainly not in church planning without these, uh, these marks of uh, wise leadership. I hate to say it, in a, in a, if, you, if you have an established church, a kind of historic established church, and ministers have come and gone over the years, uh, I don't know. I think in some ways a lack of wisdom doesn't immediately lead to breakdown. I got to tell you that in new churches and in church planting, a lack of wisdom can actually blow up the entire thing immediately like, like that. And therefore there's really, there's no risk... You need to be growing wisdom. And how? Here, according to the Bible, are one, two. Here's three ways, but the third way has three ways. <laughs> okay, here we go. Number one, reflection on daily life in community. Now, 
The reason I didn't jump right to other things that you think I'm going to jump to is the book of Proverbs talks an awful lot about people coming together and reflecting on what they're going through and becoming wise. They sit there together, people, brothers and sisters coming together, leaders coming together constantly and talking about what they're going through. I told you there's a loneliness here. Well, this would help to mitigate that to some degree. Constantly doing, you had to say it, case studies where you're saying, I'm in this situation and we're thinking, what have, and the, the question is always, what are we learning from this situation? What are we learning? One of my favorite uh, lines, just this is a little bit of a, I'll indulge myself. You know, one of uh, the um, Agatha Christie, Miss Marple novels, I forget which one it is. I think it's Bertram's Hotel. Anyway, there's a place where uh, Agatha, uh, Miss Marple has a, a, a retired Scotland Yard inspector who knows what a great detective she is. And he's, uh, he's in the same restaurant, I think, uh, talking to a friend, a, another retired policeman friend. And he, look, he, he points over to Miss Marple, who the man's never met, and he says uh, that this is the greatest, that woman over there is the greatest criminologist in England. And the, <laughs> the guy looks at the retired Scotland Yard inspector and says, what? And this is what he says. There she sits, he said, an elderly spinster, sweet, placid, or so you'd think. Yet her mind has plumbed the depths of human iniquity and taken it all in a day's work. She has lived all her life in a little rural village of St. Mary Mead. It's extraordinary. She knows the world only through the prism of that village and its daily life, but by knowing the village so thoroughly, she knows the world. The secrets of wisdom are locked in your ordinary experience if you know how to learn from it. But almost always that happens in community. So first of all, reflection on daily life and community case studies. Number one. Number two, taking criticism, rebukes. I won't take time on this. The uh, Proverbs is filled with this. Uh, my, my friend John Piper is always talking about how important it is to uh, take rebukes with a smile because they said you're, 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 there was, there's no way to become wise without at certain points getting withering critique from colleagues or others and accepting and listening. And even take, here, here's, the, here's the point. Even if the, if the criticism is 80% wrong, or let's just say ill-motivated, as my wife likes to say, Balaam's ass spoke the truth, but it was still an ass. Okay. <laughs> You're not going to say, why should I listen to what Balaam's ass says? It's an ass. Well, but it, was it, is it the truth? Yes, it's the truth. And so what if the person's motivation and all sorts of other things, what if 80% of what the person says isn't true? Do you know how to learn from that 20% or do you just dismiss that? The human heart, which never misses an opportunity for self-justification and self-salvation, never says, you don't have to listen to that 20% because that's not fair because look at all these other, you know, look at all the exaggeration and look at the poor motivation. Do you know how to, do you know how to really learn from rebukes? Number one, number two. Number three, of course you're going to hear me say this, the gospel. And the gospel does three things. It changes your temperament, it changes your identity, and it changes the way in which you handle suffering. One is it changes your temperament. I'll be quick about this, but it's very important to think about this. Uh, Jesus Christ walks into a funeral, the funeral of Lazarus. I got this all, by the way, from a Dick Lucas sermon from years ago. If you never heard this, it's just one of the greatest sermons. Uh, and uh, up comes Martha, 
and says, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. Just a few verses later, Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. In other words, two women, two sisters, same situation, same moment, and both are even asking the same question, word for word. And yet what Dick pointed out was that Martha got the truth and Mary only got tears. What, what he says to Martha is, I am the resurrection and the life. But with Mary, he just cries. Why? See, your temperament, some of us would give both people speeches and some of us would do nothing but listen and, and weep. But Jesus doesn't have a temperament. You know why? He's perfectly wise. You know, he's the, he's the, he's the wonderful counselor. And he's perfectly wise, and he gave the women exactly what they needed, not what was natural to him, because he's just wise. He doesn't have a temperament. Now, here's what's great about the gospel. The gospel will work on the part of your temperament that, that will, it'll weaken it. So there's a great place in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and it says, in there it says that Christians of low position should remind themselves of their high position in Christ. But Christians who are rich should remind themselves of their low position in Christ. Do you hear what's going on? Because we all know the gospel means that if you're a Christian, you're a horrible sinner and yet completely accepted in Christ. You're simul justus et peccator. You're simultaneously a terrible sinner and yet righteous in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, what James is saying is, those people who out there in the world are always told they're nothing, need to really, in particular, use their high position on the part of their heart that might make them not confident. But those people who are out in the world are always being told how great they are and how wonderful they are. They need to remind themselves they're just plain sinners. So the gospel's got something for you to keep you from becoming a person who is ruled by temperament. Uh, Also, just briefly, uh, the gospel also changed your identity. And if you're ever going to escape, if you're ever going to escape, uh, making your ministry an identity, you've got to recognize that it's Christ who's your identity. It's not your love for him, but his love for you. Arguably, Peter's mistake and the reason he did the stupid things he did, arguably, the reason Peter did the stupid thing, which he did, which is he, he denied Christ. You know why? He, uh, and you, you also might remember he said, he said, if everybody else abandons you, I will not abandon you, which is really weird because, of course, he was the biggest coward. He was actually saying, I'm the bravest of all these disciples. He turned out to be probably maybe the biggest coward. Do you know why? Because when he said, I will never, I will never abandon you. Here's my, my view of that. He was basing his identity more on his love for Christ than Christ's love for him. He was saying, the re- I'm sold out for you, Jesus. I'm sold out for you. So his, he had a false identity. But you see how subtle it can be. It was in his ministry. That's the reason why he had no idea really what a coward he was. He couldn't see himself. If, you're, if your self-image is based on being brave, when you look into your heart, are you going to see cowardice? No, you're just going to screen it out. Only the gospel can humble you and lift you up enough so that you don't, your ministry is not your identity as Christ. And lastly, suffering. Almost every culture, almost every religion, except our culture today, believes that nobody can become wise unless they have a hard life. (laughs) 
I mean, it's through how many of the most important things we've learned are because of troubles. Anybody living a charmed life generally is, is pretty superficial in their understanding of their, their own hearts. They're superficial when it comes to understanding other people. Uh, but here's the trouble. Suffering doesn't automatically make you wise because suffering can also make you uh, proud. Nobody suffered like I have. Suffering can make you bitter. Suffering can make you anxious. And so what's the secret? See, what will happen, I think, is suffering will harden you unless while you're in your suffering, you know that in Christ God delights in you. And that's only the gospel can... If, if, you've got, if you've got works righteousness where you basically believe the reason why God loves me is because I'm really a sold-out Christian, then when suffering comes, you're going to doubt whether God loves you. Because you basically saying, I'm giving God everything, why isn't he giving me everything? But if you really understand the gospel of, of justification and adoption, you really understand that, then what it means is during suffering, you have to say, in spite of how it feels, I know he loves me. And if you know that during suffering, then the hurt will relate to your heart the way fire relates to gold or the way pressure relates to a diamond. And the suffering will only make you something greater. Thanks for listening to the Commission Podcast. Check out and share a video version of this talk on our Facebook page. Just search for Commission. On Friday, as a bonus episode, we're going to be posting the Q&A session that followed this talk. See you then.